Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Drug overdose deaths, especially from opioids, continue to be a national epidemic. Coming up, we'll look back to previous decades when punishment, not treatment, was emphasized for drug users, especially people of color. We'll ask what lessons have been learned to help everyone struggling with addiction. Echo Yanka, professor of law at Yeshiva University in New York City, will join us later in the show. Now, here in Connecticut, the overdose death rate has been higher than the national average for several years now. Coming up, we hear about efforts by the Connecticut Opioid Response Team, or CORE. It was formed by the governor last summer to reduce opioid-related overdose deaths. And we'll talk to the first selectman of Oxford, Connecticut, to find out how his small town is addressing this growing problem. Now, how has addiction impacted your life? What strategies do you think local communities and governments should take to help families. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, over the last year, Where We Live's devoted several shows to addiction. And in each story we've heard, there have been similarities and differences. Addiction doesn't always end in the loss of life. There are plenty of recovery stories, too. One of those stories belongs to Ben Grippo. He's a West Hartford resident, also a counselor at Hartford Dispensary in Bristol. Ben's in studio with me. Welcome to the show. Hello. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Bristol, right where I work. And um, I uh, went to Bristol Central High School. I graduated in 1997. And uh, years later, I moved to the Hartford area. And I've lived here ever since by about 16, 17 years now. You're also in recovery. Tell us when you first started using. So um, this was probably right out of high school. I um, didn't really have any direction after high school, so I joined the Army, and I went to basic training, and uh, I returned, and just uh, kind of that kind of uh, began my downward spiral. I was, uh, um, what do you call it, discharged from the Army for, you know, my behavior outside in my civilian life and that kind of like, you know, threw me down mentally and emotionally and I started using drugs. I uh, moved to Poughkeepsie, New York in about 98 and uh, I was in a band and I moved up there because I was a bass player in a band and I was sick of driving there twice a week to practice Uh, and the lead singer of my band at the time had been using heroin for a few years and just like a young dumb kid, he asked me one day if I wanted to try it, and I was just like, you know, you, you know, you're 18 years old, you're kind of invincible. And I was like, yeah, why not? And that lit the fuse. And for the next eight years, uh, that pretty much consumed my life. And um, went to been to prison for it, um, you know, on and off, intravenous user, also intravenously using cocaine. Uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't any stretch of the imagination that I would be doing PCP or smoking crack or anything like that throughout the whole week. This took a place for uh, eight years, and one day, a friend of mine's mother was like, she was very cool about it too. She's like, "You ever thought about getting getting help?" And she wasn't like pushing it on me. She's like, "Did you ever think about getting help?" And she works at a treatment facility still to this day, and her name is Carol Grem. 
And uh, that kind of planted the seed in my head. And uh, one day I came home and I did not have anything left to sell in my apartment. I didn't even have a doorknob. I had a sock that was tied in a knot. And um, I was like, okay, it's time to do something about it. This is my rock bottom. And uh, I attempted to go to a local hospital a couple times. I was on methadone at the time. I, I'm a patient. I was a patient for the clinic that I work for today. And um, they wouldn't take me. They told me I was on too much methadone. And, you know, about a couple weeks battle with them being kicked back out, spending a night in detox, being kicked back out. Um, I admitted to my mother that was going on. And at this time, she thought I was still okay. I wasn't using it. I admitted to her that I had been using. And she showed up in my house the next day with probably a ream of paper. And she had printed out information to every treatment facility, to the tip of Florida, to the tip of Maine. And she goes, we're going to call every single one of these until you get a bed somewhere. And I was like, okay. And the first, uh, the first one we called was the old Cedar Crest on Vine Street, part of Mount Sinai Hospital. And they were like, can you be here tomorrow at 1? It was a Saturday. So they wanted me to come in on a Sunday. I entered treatment. I stayed there for four weeks. Um, and at the end of the four weeks, my, uh, my counselor said, so do you want to go home and get involved in the same stuff you were doing before? Or do you want to go to long-term treatment? And I had lost my job at this time, and uh, I thought it would be a good idea. So I went to a place called the Liberation House in Stanford, Connecticut. It's not a men's program anymore. It's one of the women's programs where you can bring your children while you're receiving treatment. Uh, but when I went there, I stayed there for eight and a half months. And uh, it's a little bit of between methadone and the time of stay I was in rehab that I attest my recovery to. Mm-hmm. And... Um, when I got in, they started tapering me off of methadone. I stayed there for eight and a half months, transitioned to a sober house, transitioned off of methadone, um, stayed at a sober house for about uh, six months down in Stanford, got homesick, wanted to come back to Hartford, came back to Hartford, moved in with a friend, uh, and started like a real life mm. of not using. A few things uh, strike me about your story. One, that you were an active drug user for eight years and and you didn't die. Uh, I'm very lucky. Very lucky. And the game has changed. It's not like it was when I was using. Explain what that means, because I've heard that before. And for our listeners, the potency of the drugs out there that people are using. There's a huge problem in epidemic with fentanyl right now being cut into all types of heroin. And... um, like, I, I don't want to assume, but I would assume that if anybody bought a bag of heroin off the street in Hartford today, it, it'd be about 50-50 and maybe even 90% fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And um, these dealers and people that are cutting the fentanyl, it, it's way cheaper than heroin. And it gives you the same effect. But if you're not a chemist, so you don't know how much, and that's why all these people are ODing, because you can go do, like, in my the height of my using, I would shoot 12 bags of heroin at a time. If you did that today with a dealer that you didn't know, you're going to die. You're going to overdose. Um, and it, it's super cheap. You can buy it on the dark web. You know, like you can get it anywhere. You can get it shipped to your house on like some weird websites. Uh, they make it in Mexico. They make it in the States. They make it in the Middle East. It's like it, it, it's a huge problem. And uh, it, it's really it's it's really weird to say. But like if you know that you're getting 100 percent heroin, you're kind of like blessed right now because it's so it's such a problem, you know, and uh, but nobody really is anymore. 
The other thing about your story is um, your mother came to you and said, if you need help, we're going to get you help. And Mm -hmm. we hear that story often from families that will uh, take out second mortgages if they have to so that their loved one can get into treatment. Totally. But there are a lack of beds. What would have happened to you if you weren't able to get into long-term treatment? Um, If I had to speculate, I would probably go home, uh, not use for a couple days, and then fall right back into it because the addiction is so strong. It's such a hold on you. It's uh, it's like nothing I've ever felt before. And uh, after living all these years afterwards, it's just like I've never had anything grip me like that. Like I like sweets. Like I can be like that's really all I can attest it to because it's like the power of not being able to say no. Like I could be like, okay, I'm going to start this ketogenic diet this week. No carbs, no sugar. Somebody places a piece of cheesecake in front of me and I'm like a dog. Like I'll eat it without thinking the consequences and going back on that time that I had. It's the strongest grip that I've ever experienced in my life and it was so hard to break. Has it been difficult to not relapse? Um, I think about my personal situation and I've never been tempted to use any sort of opioid. I've never been tempted to use anything, any illegal substance. Uh, I don't drink. I don't smoke cigarettes. But um, I think about it every once in a while because I sit with people all day in my job, and this this is the what they're facing every day. And um, I've never really been tempted to use it or, like, relapse. It's just, like, everything kind of got progressively better. I could see if somebody, like, tried to get clean and then they had a bunch of life uh, events that kind of, like, you know, somebody dying or something, getting super depressed or something, and then turning back to it. But, no, I I never was. And uh, once I got the job that I had, you know, it made it so much more real. And uh, it's really been a non-existent thought in my mind because I have to be what I am today for for the population I serve. This is where we live in studio with me, Ben Grippo, a West Hartford resident, a counselor at Hartford Dispensary in Bristol. He's sharing his story of recovery with us as we focus on addiction uh, on the show uh, this hour. Uh, Ben, you mentioned it sounds like you take a lot of comfort and get a lot out out of your job helping people um, at this methadone clinic. Tell me about the, the people that you... I know you can't do specifics, but the people that you help at the methadone clinic, what are their stories? How do they end up where they are today? I love my patients. You know, like, they're all different. Black, white, short, tall, big and skinny, old and young. It it really has no, like, addiction has no face. And um, there's just something about... Somebody in recovery or somebody that's been addicted at some point that they just have this air about them. And uh, it's kind of like a casual humor. Like a lot of my a lot of my patients, like they're dealing with a life threatening, you know, disorder, opioid use disorder. And they'll come into my office and they'll crack jokes and make me laugh. You know what I mean? And it's just like it's so inspiring to see somebody that's dealing with something that's so life threatening but finding the good in their day and moving on, you know what I mean? And I don't remember me being like that. I remember me and my my time of using just being so, like, sullen and, like, life is over, you know what I mean? And I didn't change my tune until I met my counselor, you know what I mean? And he gave me some hope, you know, and I, I test my recovery to myself. Like, I did it myself, but I'll tell you what, if I didn't meet that man when I went to long-term treatment, things would have went way, way different. These people are dealing with all kinds of stuff that I never dealt with. You know, my bottom was my bottom, but these people are like, 
losing their kids to a, a, a overdose, losing their parents to overdose, like going through crazy custody battles, like because they've gotten in trouble, like DCF, they're in court. And it's just like knowing that they're dealing with all that stuff and they're coming and spending a short time with me and they leave the clinic feeling a little bit better about the session we had, that's why I do it. Explain how methadone is helping them in their brain. And then if you could address the stigma that surrounds people who end up needing methadone to help them. Oh, I've written so many papers on the stigmatization of methadone patients. Uh, so methadone is a, uh, an opioid, and there's receptors in your brain that are filled with the opiate that you choose to use, and that's what gives you the euphoric high. Methadone is quite the same where it goes into these receptors in your brain, but Methadone is designed to taper somebody off of the program. That's why they call it methadone maintenance, okay? It's a harm reduction model. You can go in, you can get on methadone, and you could taper down, and you can get off and leave a drug-free life. You can also go on a methadone, stay there for the rest of your life, and I attest it to taking insulin away from a diabetic. If it's working for the person and it's their providing for their children, they're going to work, they're living a drug-free life, and they're happy, who are we to take it away from them? Some people like to stay on for long periods of time, some people go in and get it done. Uh, it's just, you know, as far as the brain chemistry goes, like I'm not really a chemist, but you know, I, uh, it's, you know, you're, you have this, you have a, uh, a setting where you are receiving counseling and you, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a safe area to come and, you know, deal with your addiction. I, don't, I know so many people that are like, I'm going to uh, kick it cold turkey or I'm going to do it myself, like, while using heroin. And it's like, it'll never happen. It'll never happen. You need to be in a setting where you uh, have like-minded people going through the same thing, where you have a counselor helping you through your issues. We have, like... Um, medical services, people get physicals once a year. We have psych services. You know, you could see a psychiatrist and be prescribed any type of med if you have like an anxiety disorder or depression. So it's all encompassing. I don't know if I answered your question. No, <laughs> sorry. Well, I felt it was, I wanted to talk with you because you are working at a, a clinic and methadone helped you, but to also hear, you know, people's reactions uh, when, and there's so much judgment there when is. you are an addict. Definitely. Um, and it starts with, well, why does someone start to begin with? And then it's, well, if you're really clean, um, does it mean you need to be on something? But everyone, like you said, is different. Everybody has their own way of thinking about it. Me personally, I started my counting my clean time the first day I didn't have methadone. And um, it's very stigmatized, uh, you know. I know a lot of people that used to go to like NA meetings and they would keep the uh, topic that they were on methadone off the table because the minute you disclose that in that setting, you are stigmatized. Mm -hmm. And uh, I tell all my patients, uh, I'm like, you can say you're clean, you can say you're not clean. It's your recovery. Nobody can take that from you. Nobody can dictate to you what your recovery is. So if you've been living a, a drug-free, you know, a, a narcotic-free life and you're not getting in trouble anymore, you're clean. That's, a, that's all there is to it. It sounds like there's a lot of support uh, these days uh, for people in recovery. But is there enough support for families? No. No. And uh, but the whole, the field as a whole is moving in the correct direction. There's an epidemic right now, and people are finally starting to notice it. But the as far as families go, like back in the day, I, 
I think like if my parents were provided with more information on addiction, on opioid addiction, maybe it would have went a different way. I'm not really sure, but that was almost 15 years ago when I was in the height of my using. And uh, the way the climate is today, there's way more help. You know, there's all kinds of services for family members and, you know, brothers and sisters to understand, like, why is my child or why is my brother, like, dealing with this? And they won't be stigmatized because it is a disease. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today we're we're talking about addiction. Uh, ben Grippo has been in recovery. How long now? I just had 10 years, July uh, 13th. And, um, you know, you can be like, oh, I got 20 years, I got 30 years. And... uh I think, like, I would always tell people, you know, I would always make a social media post with, like, a number, like, eight, nine, ten, and I got to, like, ten, and I was like, all right, I'm done. Like, I'm done, like, telling people about it because I need to concentrate that energy on getting people what I have, the same amount of clean time. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying I'm recovered because if you're an addict and you're in recovery, you've never really... You, the game's not done. It's a daily struggle. You know what I mean? But I love putting my energy to helping people go through, get out of the same like storm that I was caught in. If Ben's story uh, sounds uh, pretty familiar to you, if you've dealt with addiction or someone in your family has, we invite you to call in today, 860-275-7266. Ben's going to stay with us uh, as we move on with the show. And next, we're going to talk about efforts to confront the opioid crisis in Connecticut and nationwide. Again, that number, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut has an opioid response team that was created last summer by the governor to work on a strategy strategy rather to reduce opioid-related deaths. Now, since 2013, Connecticut's rate of deaths from drug overdoses has been higher than the national average. 917 people died from drug overdoses in 2016. That's a 25% jump from the previous year, according to the state's chief state medical examiner. Dr. James Gill has said the number of deaths involving the powerful synthetic fentanyl have increased by 155%. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to hear more about the team the state has put together uh, to try to reduce the number of these deaths. But first, on the phone with us, I want to welcome George Temple. He's the first selectman of Oxford, Connecticut. Selectman Temple, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. Good morning. Tell us a little bit about the town of Oxford. Just recently, um, it was, it's been reported that your town uh, per capita has seen one of the highest overdose death rates in the state. Uh, yes, I, you know, and I, you know, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to come to grips with uh, the reason why Oxford would have that uh, awful distinction. Um, but uh, last year we had... Uh, seven overdoses um i i went to a lot of those funerals and um you know i it's just uh, it's an awful thing to see you know they had the montage of the pictures of the of, of the um of the deceased and you know they were you know they looked like any other kid you know with the pictures of baseball uh baseball games and going fishing with their dad and 
uh, on various trips to Disneyland or whatever, and and then all of a sudden you're you're looking at a casket. It, you know, the whole thing is just a, a horrible uh, situation and something that uh, I don't know whether we can. Uh, what kind of effect we can have, but I but I know if we do nothing, we'll have no effect. So we're we're working on it. Tell us about um, how you're planning on um, trying to combat this problem. Well, we've we put together last year. We had a, a forum on it, and uh, that was um, pretty well attended. Uh, but and, you know, it it just didn't seem to be getting any better. So what we're going to be doing, I, I put together a, a committee, and, uh, you know, I don't even want to call it a committee. Uh, it's just a, a group of people to uh, talk about opiate addiction and, and what approach the town should take on it and what kind of support can we give the families. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the people that I really... Uh, feel for well first of all and you know if you're addicted to something it has to be an awful uh, life to live but what you're putting your family through is just um you know and i know a lot of these families and they're and they're really good families and good people and you know it happens all over mm-hmm. so uh you know we're 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 taking the approach that you know how do we help them how do we reach out to them um and you know what do we do to uh to get uh to dissuade children or kids or or uh, even adults from you know taking the first step in the first place and uh, you know I don't have the answers uh and you know what's uh, what I'm heartened by is that since we put together this little group um every day I have someone else calling asking to be a part of it and uh, you know from from people who are uh addicted themselves or uh or the families of the people that are addicted or the, you know in some cases doctors um uh, uh you know just at all walks of life and you know uh this is something that um that we're all concerned about and um we're in this together you know it's kind of amazing i always say that if uh, if if uh, we had one death in Oxford from West Nile disease, um, we would we would have uh, CNN would be parking on everybody's lawn and and the CDC would be up here in in, uh, in white suits. But you know we had seven deaths from uh, opiate addiction and you know hardly a ripple. Mm. And uh, you know it's. Uh, uh, you know, these people are not bad people that are dying. They're just, they're, 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 they're people that made some wrong choices, but that that should not be a death sentence. I and mean, this whole thing is, uh, it has a devilish grip on, uh, on, on, uh, on, on people who are addicted to it once, once, uh, once they take it. George Temple is first selectman of Oxford, Connecticut. George, if you could just remain on the line, because I wanted to bring in someone who's working on this from the state level, Dr. Robert Heimer, professor of epidemiology and pharmacology at Yale School of Public Health. He's a member of this Connecticut opioid response team uh, put forth by the governor last summer. Dr. Heimer, welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about this response team. Again, who are the members and what have you been working on the past year? Uh, the 
the team was was convened by by the governor in his office uh, last spring, or spring of 2016, to come up with a, a plan to implement evidence-based practices that might, in the short term, decrease the number of opioid overdose deaths. We have a, a three-year period in which we're trying to uh, demonstrate that applying uh, five or six strategies that we know should reduce the number of overdose deaths if they're properly implemented um, can can have a, can have an impact on on reducing the deaths in Connecticut. The the members of the team include people from the emergency department, uh, Department of Medicine, School of Public Health, like myself, um, and. Uh, we put together a plan that was released last fall after consulting with people from around the state who agreed that these five air topic areas um, that we focused on have the greatest possibility of having an effect over the next three-year period. Uh, Dr. So Heimer, could you give us some specifics? And yes. with uh, strategy comes uh, the I question will, of resources. So what I, then? <laughs> I will give you each of the five areas. The first area is to expand evidence-based treatment for opioid use disorder, and that's um, specifically methadone and buprenorphine, opiate agonist drugs that um, we know can be effective in preventing the use of illegal or illicit drugs that can restore people's um, ability to work, to engage with, successfully with family and community, reduce crime, uh, to reduce the risks of of overdose in the short run and supply, uh, be sure there's an adequate supply of naloxone, the, the drug that can be used to reverse opioid overdose and make sure that that's widely distributed in the community. Um, we want to tr- better train doctors and other people who can prescribe opioids to do it in a in a way that's that's commensurate with 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 a proper prescribing guidelines, reducing the quantities of opi- opioids uh, prescribed, eliminating prescribing under c- for conditions where opioid uh, prescription is not appropriate, like chronic back pain. Uh, we want to uh, increase um, access to alternatives to to uh, you know using opioids where they are not appropriate. Um, we want to reduce co-prescribing of opioids and benzodiazepines, which augment the likelihood of opioid overdose deaths. And that will require, a lot of this will require physician training. We want to increase the number of physicians who prescribe uh, buprenorphine, which will allow office-based prescribing rather than having to go to a, um, a methadone clinic. We think methadone is as, or maybe even a little more effective than buprenorphine, but buprenorphine also is a very effective drug for treating opioid use disorder. But I think some of the most important things in listening to the, to the mayor's conversation, you know, comments, is we really need to increase, and this is one of our plan, part of our plan, is to increase community understanding of opioid use as a disease uh, and reduce the stigma associated with seeking treatment. You're talking about uh, first selectman of Oxford, George Temple. I wanted yeah. to bring him back into the conversation. Uh, selectman Temple, uh, is, how much do you know about this state response uh, to try to reduce the number of opioid-related deaths? And what would the town of Oxford need from the state to help you as you try to figure out what to do locally? Well, I, th- I, th- I think we have a different focus. And 
And uh, this problem is like an onion, and you know, it has several layers to it. Um, the the uh, the treatment is uh, extremely important, um, and you know uh, Narcan obviously has already saved lives it has here, um, but it's um, uh, uh, getting to the doctor's point. I want to have a little bit more of a, a greater understanding and empathy for the problem, uh, and uh, and remove that stigma. Uh, you know, in any any way that the state can help with that, it would would be uh, terrific. Uh, and I, you know, I, I must say, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm a criminal lawyer, and I've been practicing for over 40 years. And I kind of uh, fell into a lot of stereotypes myself until I started really looking into this thing. You know, you you, you think of the addict as a, as a weak person and. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, the, those kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a dependent and every, you know, all the things that aren't necessarily positive at all. And, uh, yeah, you know, when you, when you really, um, when you look into what the problem is today, uh, it's, uh, I mean, this is a death sentence. Uh, you know, you can't, uh, you know, what, you know the doctor's work is doing is uh, you know try to try to save lives and uh uh you know it's it, you know sooner or later it's going to get you mm. uh and, but in you know in the meantime it wrecks your family and and makes you into a thief and a liar and uh and that's kind of uh that's kind of a common thread among uh opiate uh, addicts that over the years uh, you know that I have seen is they can't believe them so you know these kind of uh, these these kind of you know it's obviously a negative uh, image that you know people have, and uh, you know uh, you know and partially uh, uh, justified uh, you know because there are a lot of a lot of people in prison who uh, who, who stole for drugs, and that's why they're there, but you know there but it goes beyond that. And the problem goes beyond that. It's just, um, you know, why are these kids starting in the first place or adults starting in the first place? Well, Selectman Temple, I want to bring into the conversation uh, a caller. But again, this is where we live today. We're talking about uh, the issue of addiction in our communities, uh, the the number of opiate opioid-related deaths continue to grow uh, nationwide. Uh, Scott's calling from Danbury. Uh, Scott, you're on the show. Hi. Good morning. So, um, I'm sorry, Scott. It sounds you're hot. You're hard to hear. Are you on speaker okay, by on. chance? Yeah, hang on a second. Is this better? A little better. Thank you. Okay. So um, I had a neck injury many years ago, chronic pain. Uh, now I'm disabled at 56, but for 15 years I was successfully treated with pain management. Initially with a low dose, you know, like Vicodin. Ultimately going up to about 30 milligram oxycodone. Uh, almost pushing 300 milligrams a day. And at that point, the pain management doctors um, are complicit because, and, and the doctor told me they were told by pharma to just keep prescribing. And then, you know, when people start dropping dead, they said, oh, we got to, you know, slow you down. So I tried to get them to slow me down, and they had no plan. They said, go to Silver Hills, New Canaan for 20 grand a day, which I couldn't afford. So I had to go to methadone clinic, and it worked for me. And now I'm drug free, but I am in chronic pain all the time, and, you know, I can't work. And, it's, very, it's been very difficult, but the point I wanted to make is that 
you know, the doctors need addiction training. That is so critical because uh, the pain management doctors specifically, because they've been complicit in this along with the pharmas. And, you know, that's, that's, it's definitely, I don't know if it's starting there, but, but gosh, it's certainly ending there. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Uh, important points to make. Uh, again, uh, I wanted to go back to Dr. Robert Heimer, professor of epidemi- epidemiology and pharmacology at Yale School of Public Health. Dr. Heimer, uh, if we could uh, answer some of Scott's questions, including are we seeing a change in the healthcare profession? Are doctors prescribing fewer opioid prescriptions? In, in Connecticut, it seems as though in some parts of the state, yes, and in other parts of the state, no. So more training of, of physicians is absolutely necessary. The, 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 the problem has been one in 30 years in the making is that when, once we recognized that treating pain was important, we had one set of drugs for treating pain. Those were the opioids. Um, it's one of those situations where if you've got a hammer, everything is a nail. Um, it took us a long time to realize that you don't treat chronic pain with opioids, um, especially chronic neuromuscular kinds of pain like the caller described, Scott described, because um, you, you're only masking the, symptom, the underlying symptoms. You're not, you're not dealing with them directly. Um, the problem is finding the right treatments for his kind of chronic pain. Um, you know, a lot of that requires changes in our whole health care system. If, if what you require to treat your chronic pain is, is six months of rest and you're holding down a job and you don't have the, the coverage that would allow you to, to go on leave and still be paid for six months, you can't take that approach. Um, so the system doesn't work for people like this. If you're being told that you need physical therapy and every physical therapy visit requires a copay, um, again, that's not an economically feasible response for a lot of working class people, even if they have insurance, and certainly isn't a, isn't a response for people who don't have good health care coverage. So there are some of these fundamental changes that are, that are going to take some long-term um, pushes, you know, uh, uh, political changes by, by people like the first selectmen and other people who push, have to push for changes in the, within the political system to improve the kinds of care that people can get for chronic pain. Now, we heard from a listener, uh, he couldn't stay on the line, uh, Bruce, but he wanted to know what happens if you do need surgery and you are prescribed painkillers. Is opioid sparing surgery, is that becoming more of an option for people? We spoke to uh, a doctor at St. Mary's Hospital in Waterbury several months ago where they're um, using, trying this more often. In the short run, opioids are a really good drug for post-surgical pain, you know, uh, three, four, five, six days. Uh, there are very few people who become uh, addicted uh, based on such short-term exposure to opioids, and certainly they help you deal with uh, the initial pain post-surgically or post-traumatic injury. Um, but they're not appropriate drugs for dealing with long-term pain. Um, so we do need alternative uh, mechanisms. I know that, for instance, at Yale New Haven Hospital, um, they've the surgical staff has changed the prescribing practices so that when people are released from the hospital and, you know, we're keeping people in the hospital for shorter and shorter periods after surgery and we're sending them home when they're still in pain um, and we're sending them home with opioids, we want to decrease the amount of, of opioids we send them home with and, and you know, 
uh, medical staff like the surgical staff at, at Yellow Haven have begun to implement these appropriate changes in prescribing tactics, which in the long run will reduce the number of people who develop uh, opioid use problems. This is where we live. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to take a, another call. Uh, Jennifer is calling from Hartford. Jennifer, you're on the show. Hi. Um, I have a question. Um, with uh, the increasing amounts of deaths and incarcerations in Connecticut, what is being, uh, what services are being provided for these orphans of addiction? Often these children are placed with family members. Um, are there any services for the family members? Are, you know, um, what's been in place for these children? Because it's increasing. That's a good question, Jennifer. And I know uh, Dr. Heimer's uh, focus with the Connecticut Opioid Response Team is looking at trying to reduce opioid-related deaths. But with the membership that's on uh, this committee, Dr. Heimer, I'm sure these kinds of questions come up. We hear from our listeners all the time about trying to find resources for families. And, and Jennifer wants to know, what about children of addicts? I really don't know much about that that I can be of direct help with. Uh, I know that as we try to get more of the state agencies to talk to each other, it becomes clear that uh, bringing in people from the state uh, children and youth services will be critically important for addressing questions um, such as this. But uh, it, in the short run, uh, again, with especially with the state budget issues in Connecticut and the lack of resources, it's uh, going to be hard to figure out how to find the, the money we need to deal with all of these related issues. And of course, these are very large social issues, not just individual issues of, of disease and proper disease treatment, but of, of the social factors that underlie and, and create uh, um, the desire on the part of so many people to experiment with and subsequently become addicted to opioids. Uh, Bruce is calling from Hartford. Bruce, we have a couple of minutes, if you could uh, be quick. Uh, hi. Uh, so I'm a 53-year-old guy who uh, is 27 years clean off of uh, drugs and alcohol, and I was able to get this far by going to 12-step meetings. And I just wanted to comment, I'm really surprised to not hear any discussion uh, at the state planning level about utilizing the resource that we have in almost every community of uh, Narcotics Anonymous and other 12-step um, fellowship programs. Thank you, Bruce, for your call. I wanted to go back to our in-studio guest, uh, Ben Grippo. He's a West Hartford resident. Um, he's been clean for 10 years now, counselor at Hartford Dispensary in Bristol. Uh, we had touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, everyone's journey is different. A lot of people have questions about what works best for them. Where do people go for these these answers? Um, to answer that caller's questions about, like, 12-step <clears throat> programs, NAAA, uh, there's even Methadone Anonymous uh, meetings. Uh you know, follow to a T. The twelve-step program is pretty perfect, but uh, that's like, you know, people are people, and they take their own take on it. I myself, straight out of rehab, probably went to an NA meeting once a day for a few months, and then, you know, life started to take over, and I would, you know, dial it back a little bit. But I'll tell you, like, uh, some of the things I heard people say in those meetings stayed with me. And that what I that's what I tell my patients. Like I don't push twelve step meetings on them because it's not for everybody. But the ones that do like it, I tell them go there, listen, and take something home because somebody there has gone through the same thing you have, and then you can make a connection. 
And I think that's the biggest uh, gift that NA or AA could do for anybody in that situation. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, Ben Grippo in studio with me. I want to thank Dr. Robert Heimer, professor of epidemiology and pharmacology at Yale School of Public Health, a member of the Connecticut Opioid Response Team. Uh, Dr. Heimer, thank you for your time today. Well, you're welcome. Um, can I have one comment on the 12-step issue? Uh, very quickly. Um, we know from 100 years of, of work that uh, abstinence is not the appropriate treatment for opioid use disorder. It works for a very small percentage of people. Uh, opioid agonist therapy works for about eight times as many people successfully. So we want to prioritize proper treatment, um, not, not give people a treatment that, that's a, that allows them to relapse and then overdose subsequently. Dr. Heimer, thank you for that point. We appreciate it. Also, to Selectman George Temple, uh, who's the first Selectman of Oxford, Connecticut, thank you for your time today, sir. Uh, My pleasure. Coming up, we consider how the discussions around drug abuse have changed dramatically in recent decades. The victims of the current opioid crisis look very different from the drug crises of the past, where punishment, not recovery, was emphasized. What have been the lasting consequences on the black community in the U.S.? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When drug abuse impacts families from all backgrounds, stigma can begin to be erased. But what are the long-lasting consequences of the government's war on drugs in the 1980s and the impact on people of color? Joining us now is Echo Yonka, professor of law at Yeshiva University's Cardozo Law School in New York City. Uh, Echo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, you've written and uh, been featured in interviews uh, recently about uh, when we look at this uh, drug epidemic sweeping our country, you often will reflect on what happened 30 years ago when our country saw another epidemic, as you write, of, quote, addiction, death, and crime. Remind us of that time um, in our history and what lessons can we learn? Well, I think anybody um, anybody of uh, even early middle age here remembers very much what life looked like when we were uh, terrified and made terrified of the crack epidemic. That is, it was in fact terrifying. But we also remember that we were told um, of super predators stalking the streets. Uh, We were constantly bombarded with images of um, crack mothers and crack babies. That is to say, there was a social sort of decision, diffuse, but certainly led by our government, to paint this as a crime of um, pathology, of failures of character, something wrong with those people. And those people, it was very clear who they were, right? It was inner-city African-Americans. And we were told that they were going to be responsible and that we were going to punish our way out of it. Um, We declared a war on drugs. Um, It has been stunning to see, uh, though, though I'm thrilled, of course, that we're not returning to those same mistakes. It's a remarkable contrast when you think that the president just last week declared a national public health emergency in the case of the opioids epidemic. Um, so our cultural memory is one of, of remarkably different contrasts on this same issue. Now, you also write that your points are not about racial guilt, but you want to stress about lessons learned. Disparities still exist today, Echo. Uh, what ne- still needs work? Yeah, I mean, so what, what I mean by I'm not interested in racial guilt is, I should be clear, I'm not interested in guilt for its own sake. Um, I think guilt is an emotionally healthy uh, response 
when we say we did something wrong and we will strive to do better rather than the sort of cheap guilt of finger pointing. So, look, I mean, what we know is if we search for the humanity of those who are suffering with social problems, when we see a problem, it's a social problem, we can make a decision about how to treat it. And we need to learn we need to think and reflect deeply about why we are so quick to treat problems in black and Hispanic communities as police problems. And when we see the exact same problem in white communities, we say, this is a social problem we need to fix. And if we can fix that feeling, um, then hopefully the tomorrows are better, because the next time we see a problem, we don't relapse into the same easy racism. I want to go back to our in-studio guest, uh, Ben Grippo. He's a counselor at Hartford Dispensary, a methadone clinic in Bristol, Connecticut. Ben, when you talk to your clients, uh, do you feel that they are getting the access to the appropriate treatment, no matter their race? Today, yes. Uh, 30 years ago, no, definitely not. Uh, I feel like the African-American community back in the crack epidemic was villainized. And that's all you saw in pictures and on the news. And nobody was really showing the other side of it because there was definitely a lot of Caucasian like uh, crack users back in the day. And I don't think it really became an, uh, they didn't really like start looking at it differently until this uh, uh, opioid addiction started killing like white high school kids. And then it was a, then it was an issue. That's when everybody opened their eyes, and that's really sad because it was painted to be an African-American problem from the 60s, people coming back from Vietnam in the 80s and even now, but it's not. It's for it's everybody, and I'll, I'll give you a statistic. My clinic that I work at is predominantly Caucasian, maybe because of the, uh, the geographic location, but it's not. It's really not uh, like an African American thing. It's about anybody, and I don't think they started taking initiative on it until, you know, your your local Caucasian soccer mom OD'd. You know what I mean? Or young white kids in in high school. I want to take a quick call from a listener. Uh, Joe's calling from Bristol. Joe, are you there? Oh, let me try it. Nope, Joe is not there. Um, I'll go back to, to Echo. Um, so when we talk about uh, disparities that still exist today, in Connecticut especially, uh, when people are um, in jail for whatever reason, uh, there is this emphasis uh, for um, helping people um, restart their lives, uh, a second chance, so to speak. Um, is that happening uh, for people that have drug records as well, Echo? No, of course not. So, you know, now, of course, uh, frankly, it makes me sad to say I think we will see a change when we get a slew of people who are released um, from jail because of their drug record. Um, but look, I mean, it, it, the case is exactly as you point out. It's just um, when we saw people either gripped by addiction or imprisoned for addiction and they were black, we looked for what was wrong with them, right? So let me take high-profile examples, even if they're an atypical, right? Everybody just thought, what is wrong with Whitney Houston? I mean, here is a woman who has the world in her hand. And then she fell in with this rough guy, Bobby Brown, right? He was painted lightly as a thug. He was the bad influence. Um, and now, look, you know, there was a sort of what is wrong with her. Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of the great actors of our generation, dies in his Manhattan apartment and the only stories were about the heartbreak of drug addiction. Now, I'm not saying people weren't sympathetic to 
to um, Whitney Houston. My only point is, it is just remarkable how different our responses are depending on how much we care about the people we're viewing and how much our care depends on race. And that includes what happens with their um, their ability to reincorporate and re-enter society, including uh, rehabilitation and their criminal record and the collateral sanctions that follow them. Oh, I wanted. We just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to um, give back to our in-studio guest, Ben Grippo. Uh, we heard uh, Echo mention uh, the president uh, declaring um, this opioid epidemic a national emergency, but saying it is one thing. What's it going to take to actually impact these local communities across the country? Um, it's been a it's been a, a a problem for years, and just because our current president said it the other day doesn't change anything. Until they start throwing FEMA money on it, I'm not buying anything. You know what I mean? Uh, it all comes down to community level because you'll come to these states and you'll see different states and different cities putting different emphasis on the problem. But as a whole, as a whole, as a nation, it all needs to be the same across the board. I don't care if you live in Nevada, Rhode Island everybody's using opiates everywhere. Everybody's dying. So to put a little bit more emphasis on this white community and less over here, it, it needs to be straight across, straight across the board. And like we were talking before, um, him saying he changed his view over the couple of days and uh, saying that the president, if they don't start, they don't have a problem. And I think he got a lot in his ear after that because he went back and he changed his his uh the, his speech on that. But um, yeah, it's it, it's hard. It's very hard. Well, I want to thank Ben Grippo for coming into the studio today. Again, a West Hartford resident. We appreciate you sharing your story with us, Ben. Thank you so much. And also to echo Yanka, professor of law at Yeshiva University's Cardoza Law School in New York City. We'll tweet out some of the articles you've written. Echo, thank you for your time as well. Thank you for joining. Uh, thank you for having me. Now, today's show was produced by Jeff Tyson. We wanted to wish Jeff good luck as he heads back to New York State to be closer to family. I was thinking back to the shows we worked on together, and two stick out in my mind. One on the history of boxing in Connecticut, and another on barbershops. Interestingly enough, the on-air sparring happened during the barbershop show. If you didn't hear that one, we want you to check it out at wmpr.org slash where we live. Thanks, Jeff. I also want to thank uh, Lydia Brown, Kion Wolf, Katie Tolarski. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>